0: listening to Pythagoras' Trousers. Welcome to this month's Pythagorean Astronomy with me, Chris North. And me, Edward Gomez. We'll talk later about the possible future of life on Earth over the next century, as dictated by the Astronomer Royal himself, Professor Martin Rees. Uh, But first of all, we uh, we should talk about potatoes on Mars, Edward. (laughs) Yeah, potatoes on Mars. Who doesn't
1: love a Martian potato? Uh, So if you've seen the film or read the book, The Martian... Uh, one which of I,
0: the- I saw recently. Ah,
1: okay. Um, well, this isn't a spoiler for you, yeah. but um, one of the main things that Mark Watney, uh, Matt Damon's character, does in order to survive is grow potatoes on Mars. And there's a team in uh, the Andes which is trying to do the same. Uh, well, not trying to grow potatoes on Mars, but trying to grow potatoes in similar situation to Mars. Uh, and in the Andes, uh, this particular place, they've um, uh, they decided to use a Peruvian sort of potato. Um, and they're growing it in regolith at very low temperatures. And regolith is what we understand the surface of Mars to be. So Mars doesn't have soil like we have on the Earth uh, because it doesn't have organics in it. Uh, also, Martian soil isn't fluffy like our mm. soil. Uh, it's very hard and it's dusty. And it's also very hard, so uh, it's, it's actually quite different to the soil that we have.
0: It's, it's more like a sand type. Texture, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's
1: very very rough, um, and uh, it's very difficult to make it into. If you wanted to add water and make it into a patty, for example, yeah. it be it's quite difficult compared to soil to do that. Uh, but this team in the Andes has had success in growing potatoes in that environment. So the other thing that they do is make it very very cold to see whether uh, the potatoes can grow, and give about the same amount of light
0: as you get. Uh, on mars so they, they've done it in a lab not in a field right okay and and so where do they get the nutrients from I wonder, because in the film he gets them from a rather unpleasant uh place <laughs> uh,
1: yes that's right in the film and in the book uh he recycles uh waste <laughs>
0: <laughs> let's leave it at that I yes think it... <laughs> uh
1: so to, in order to fertilize the the martian regolith um, the in the uh in the peruvian experiment I think they just use and actually I can't quite remember but I think they just use the nutrients that are in the um the soil because they're, right. they're using sorry the, the regolith they're using actual peruvian regolith
0: right and and because there are organic chemicals and there, there is life here on earth there is That's some right. nutrient yep. in there yeah uh, anyway okay so they've grown potatoes in mars-like conditions or the closest analog uh, yeah
1: so you know it's an interesting experiment um because normally what we do is uh when, when you want to grow something in space is to enhance yield you want mm-hmm. to uh, that's the, you know, all of the almost all of the space station agricultural experiments are to try and increase the yield of a crop so that we can uh, we, we will be able to sustain an ever growing mm-hmm. population something that uh, Lord Rees has talked about. So um, this is actually a very different thing. How do you grow things in very extreme conditions where you don't care about the yield, you just care about the plant survival?
0: Hmm. It's, uh, yeah, it's a, a problem that uh, I guess is, is, is one of these problems that's not for the short term, but for the long term future. You know, we're not going to yeah. be having people growing potatoes on Mars any time in the next few years, but maybe in a few decades it becomes an issue. So it's a yeah, yeah,
1: that's right. And also being able to farm in extreme locations on the Earth, yeah. you know, yeah. you can either do the extreme yield or you can do the extreme conditions and uh you know because there are, we do have a lot of land that is mm-hmm. inhospitable and if you can grow stuff on that like in deserts in the in the andes at very high altitude very cold temperatures uh, then that actually could be uh, a really useful thing for us living on the earth
0: in a similar time scale to people perhaps going to mars yeah well, well, we'll probably possibly touch on a few of these things uh, later on as well. Uh, moving off the Earth uh, briefly to other planets, we spoke last month about TRAPPIST-1, of course, this, this discovery of seven planets around a relatively nearby star. Um, it's exoplanet month again, Uh, this month. Uh, It seems to happen uh, almost every month. It's always Exoplanet (laughs) Month.
1: They find them all the time.
0: And and actually we we had an interesting talk uh, here in Cardiff uh, from Dr Niku Madasudan from uh, the Exoplanets group over at the University of Cambridge and he was talking about this. He uh, was saying that there there were two types of discoveries we'll see. These particular results are about atmospheres of exoplanets which are very difficult to look at and we're going to see two different kind of results coming out over the next few years one is the atmospheres of very giant planets like jupiter or bigger that are orbiting very close to their star and the other is about maybe earth-sized planets or rocky planets about the same size as the earth or venus um but uh, orbiting very very small stars because those pairings big star big planets around sun like stars and smallish planets around much smaller stars are the ones that are easy to detect and to measure.
1: Yeah that's right because the thing that you look at with a transit which is how uh, many exoplanets have been found particularly the ones that were found by the Kepler spacecraft uh, is and and a transit by the way is when you have a planet passing in front of a star Mm. and the brightness of the star dims just a a little bit. Um, So the the thing that you can tell about the exoplanet from that little dip in brightness is the size of the planet relative to the size of the star. Uh, and so if you've got a very very large star and a very uh, very small planet you get a very small dip in the brightness which is quite hard to measure um, but if you've got the same sized planet around a much smaller star then you've got proportionally a bigger dip and so it's easier to measure
0: and the stars we're talking about they're called m dwarfs or red dwarfs, and they're they're not much bigger than jupiter they're 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 pretty small, about a tenth the size of our sun, typically, or a few tenths the size of our sun. So they are really very small. And the two planets that have been, the atmospheres have been talked about uh, recently. There, there's two. Um, there's one discovered by the uh, the Kepler spacecraft you just mentioned. So Ke- Kepler one six four nine B is the the name of that planet. And there's another one which goes by the the uh, the name GJ one one three two B. So uh, well, yeah,
1: barcode to... names. Yes.
0: <laughs> um, but these two planets are. Uh, About the same size as the Earth. A little bit bigger, both of them. Um, But they're they're too close to their stars to be considered to be Earth-like. Even though the stars are smaller, these planets are very, very close to them.
1: Yeah, and they're very, very hot as well. Uh, So uh, they're they're very close, they're very hot, but they're the right size and the right mass for for Earth. So um, one of them, uh, GJ1132b, has an atmosphere, and uh, that is something that's very interesting to study. Atmospheres mm. around exoplanets are very, very hard to detect. Uh, and finding things that are in the the, uh, the atmosphere are even harder. And this uh, exoplanet uh, has possibly water and methane in it. And we know that water is something that we quite like uh, mm. here on Earth. So if you've got uh, a water atmosphere there's the possibility, the vague possibility, but still the possibility that there is water on the ground, and then you've got water
0: that could produce life forms. And these are talked about as being almost an exo-Venus, an equivalent of Venus, but outside, uh, around another star. So the surface temperature is going to be in the hundreds of degrees, probably, depends on the details of what that atmosphere is made of, which is what the surface temperature of Venus is. But you're right, that atmosphere, that that possibly water-rich atmosphere, means that high up, maybe in the cloud layers, there's something happening uh, yeah. in terms of forming life so we, we just don't really understand what starts life forming so yes <laughs> um, lots of questions uh, lots of questions there so that's all very exciting in terms of planets around other stars and over the coming years we're going to find out much much more uh, about these instruments on telescopes, the cameras the spectrometers on telescopes get better uh, and we get better uh, measurements of these things but I mean that that takes a long time to,
1: to Yeah, get... to produce those. But there's there's also some hope that there is a mission to produce uh, the the next generation Hubble Space Telescope called a James Webb Space Telescope. Yeah. And, and that is uh, a much bigger telescope. It's not looking at the same sort of light as uh, Hubble. It'll be looking at uh, infrared light, but it will be perfectly suited to looking at these type of
0: exoplanets. It's a, a very exciting future for this field. So those are planets... Uh, outside our solar system going around other stars but of course in the in the near term in terms of humanity in the human race we're worried about our own planet and this is what Martin Rees was talking about in a recent lecture uh, earlier on in April we had the pleasure of welcoming Professor Martin Rees Lord Rees uh, to give a talk Uh, on the world in 2050 and beyond. It was organised by the Learned Society for Wales, along with Cardiff University, and Professor Rees is now the second honorary fellow of the Learned Society uh, for Wales, so an accolade for them and for him, I imagine. The talk covered various threats to humanity's survival on planet Earth, uh, from uh, large-scale effects such as population growth and climate change, but also from the the small-scale individuals or groups uh, such as bioterror, cyberterror, that kind of thing. More importantly, uh, Professor Rees talked about the ways that disaster might be averted. So for anyone who... uh, didn't make the talk I had the opportunity to chat to uh, Professor Rees and I think the first question that was useful to ask him uh, was what the major threats facing us
2: are. I think there are two categories there's a class of threats which is caused by us collectively because there are more and more human beings on the world each having a greater impact in terms of energy and resources and of course we are aware of what this might do with regard to climate change and with regard to uh, reducing biodiversity. So that's one class of threats. The other class of threats comes from the fact that technology is getting much more powerful and we're in an interconnected world where it's going to be more and more possible for even a small group of people to have a global impact either by error or by design. So we're getting rather more vulnerable because technology is more powerful and that's the second category of threats.
0: And and as we learn more about the the threats and hazards that we we face as a as a species or in, in, from individuals, as you say, do you think that we're adapting fast enough to these threats, or do we need to have much more of a, a push to prepare prepare for perhaps the worst cases?
2: Well, I think there's a problem of getting any kind of action with regard to long term global threats like uh, climate change because obviously politicians focus on the uh, immediate and the local and most people do as well so it's very hard to get the necessary action which we need to I- implement if we want to reduce the risk of our climate becoming dangerously different in the next century and if you want to reduce a possible risk to future generations. So that's one problem. But I think there is also the problem that when technology is changing very fast, we do find it hard to adapt to it. And uh, obviously, we know how much our lives have been changed by information technology. And we know that biotech is going to change them and open up new possibilities. And we do have to ensure we can adapt to these in a way that maximizes the benefits and minimizes the risks from them.
0: You say that politicians often work on the sort of the local and, and, and the immediate. I mean, is that a is that not a sort of a, a problem in some senses? Is, is could you not argue that a, a a politician's job in terms of you know the government is is to actually look longer
2: term? Well, it is, but it's hard for them. In fact, uh, uh, Mr. Juncker, the EU, famously said that we know what the right thing is to do, but we don't know what we can do to ensure that we do the right thing and get re-elected. So the trouble is that it's the public which is short-term. I don't think we can blame the politicians entirely, but I do think that it is important to ensure that the politicians do care more about long-term issues. And the only way that they will is if the public care. I know lots of people who've been political advisors to government, and they've been frustrated because they say these things, but there's not much action. What politicians care about is what's in their inbox and what's in the press. So I think if we want to increase the chance that actions will be taken to reduce these long-term threats and to respond to the uh, concerns about climate change, etc., we've got to make sure the public cares about these and i think we can do this through going public through our blogs and being in the media and also i think we can use uh, the great religions one thing i've been involved in which has been very productive i think in the last two years is the uh, papal academy of sciences which uh meets at the vatican and two years ago they had a meeting on climate and environment attended by leading experts from around the world And that was an important input into the papal encyclical in the summer of 2015. And that encyclical had a real global influence, especially in Latin America, Africa, and East Asia, on the opinion at the time of the big Paris climate conference in December 2015. So that's an example where, by engaging the public, Uh, then one was able to have an impact. And what everyone thinks of the Catholic Church, no one can deny its uh, uh, concern with the world's poor, its long-term interests and its global reach. And that's why that's an example of how you can get through to the public and then the public will influence politicians. So scientists should engage with the public and then the public will have more impact collectively on politicians than we scientists can have alone.
0: And you think that's more important as a as, as scientist trying to get our message across? That's more important than just writing to our MP or assembly member or, or whatever?
2: Well, I think so. Obviously, as scientists, we are also citizens and we need to, to write. But, of course, uh, uh, when we are speaking about things outside our special expertise, we scientists are just citizens and aren't entitled to a special voice. So all we've got to do is to ensure that there's a wide public Attuned to these issues, and that will ensure they rise up the political agenda
0: so so given what we've learned over over recent years and and, and decades and how that's that's changed over time, are there any technologies or, or fields of study that you think are particularly important to continue developing to avert any sort of future long term or, or medium term threats?
2: Well, if we think about uh, the concern about climate change, I'm pessimistic about any actions that actually uh, uh, cause us to uh, deny ourselves comforts, etc. But what I think is very important, and what I have been pushing for, is to enhance research and development into all kinds of clean energy. Because the more research and development we do, the quicker we'll develop efficient ways of generating and storing energy. And more importantly, the quicker the cost will come down. And if we can ensure that there's clean energy, which India can afford, and I take India, because in India, clearly, there's going to be demand for more energy, and they have every reason to avoid their current system, where lots of people get energy from stoves burning wood and dung, which is very unhealthy. If you can bring down the cost, so if renewable energy is affordable by India, and they don't need to build coal-fired power stations, that'll do a lot of good. So I would say that one important goal is to increase research and development into clean energy. And it's hard to think of a more inspiring aim for any young person going into engineering than to provide clean, safe, sustainable fuel for the world. And there has been some progress. In fact, uh, after the Paris conference, about 20 countries signed up to try and double their publicly funded R&D into clean energy Um, and uh, Bill Gates and some other private financiers said they would do this. And so I think that's something which is very important because it's actually um, something which is constructive, pushing ahead with technology in a benign way. So I support that. And of course, which renewables we go for depends on where we are uh, if you're in Cardiff, perhaps you would favour tidal lagoons. And I think it's great that we have the prototype being built in Swansea, whereas in other countries, solar energy is obviously the best bet. So we have to study all these options and different countries will take different mixes.
0: I think it's it's probably fair to say that there's a balance to be made between the development of technology to solve a particular problem or to fit a purpose, which I guess you could summarise as R&D, research and development, I suppose, and, and then the curiosity-led or the the, the the blue skies research, such as astronomy and cosmology, that, that you've been involved with for, for most of your scientific career. Do you think that the balance is about right at
2: the moment? I think so. I think one shouldn't see a trade-off between one and the other. There's a positive symbiosis between... Uh, or all the sciences and I think we want to encourage people to uh, uh, explore uh, any science and this will build up stronger universities and if we have stronger universities we'll get better trained students coming out who will be able to do all these different things so I think there's not uh, a conflict but I think we do clearly need to raise the priority of these because in the UK uh, we are spending rather less on all forms of uh, research and development than most other countries. And we need to uh, increase this. It's even more important that we should now, because if we don't get smarter, we get poorer compared to countries in the Far East, which are spending more on research and development and on their universities. Uh,
0: And and do you think there are any additional concerns raised about any of that by, by recent political events around the world? I mean, I'm thinking, of course, about um, the, in, in the US with the, the, the clampdown, if you like, or the cut in funding, proposed cut in funding to, uh, to climate research and the Environmental Protection Agency, and then um, more locally with, with possible concerns, although I guess we don't know what they are, of uh, leaving the EU?
2: Yes. Well, I think uh, uh, you, you know, we watch with concern what's happening in the US, clearly. But if we think about uh, uh, what's happening in Europe, uh, then clearly uh, if we leave the EU, We need to make sure that the uh, collaborations which we have with the rest of Europe are sustained uh, because many of these important issues, like uh, providing energy, are best solved on a multinational level, not on a national level. So we need to ensure that they don't suffer. I think it's going to be hard to avoid some downsides because the uh, uh, lack of freedom of movement and the uh, perception that the UK is becoming a less welcoming country to global talent is going to harm us. And that's one of the downsides of Brexit. But we've got to uh, uh, try and hope that we can avoid these downsides.
0: Now, now you've had uh, an an illustrious career and currently hold the title of Astronomer Royal, as well as a seat in the House of Lords, of course. Uh, What sort of uh, tasks uh, do you have to fulfil as the Astronomer Royal? Or or is it largely an uh, honorary role?
2: Well, Astronomer Royal is an entirely honorary title. The Astronomer Royal used to be the person who ran the uh, uh, Greenwich Royal Observatory, which was, of course, set up as the first government-funded scientific centre in 1675. Uh, But from the 1950s onwards, uh, of course, it became possible for astronomers to uh, build telescopes and fly to telescopes in sunnier um, and uh, uh, clearer and higher locations like Canary Islands, Hawaii and Chile and from that time onwards the Greenwich Observatory became a museum, not an active place for science and the title therefore was uh, turned into an honorary one uh, given to a senior academic in the subject and so it is a purely honorary title. I mean I sometimes uh, say cynically that duties are so exiguous that I can continue them posthumously.
0: (laughs) Um, And and with your, your seat in the uh, the House of Lords. Um, so your your uh, Baron Rees of Ludlow, I believe, is the uh, the full title uh, that goes with goes with that. Um, have you always been interested in in politics or policy? I guess maybe. And 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 how do you find that the debates in the House of Lords compare with with scientific debates that that you and I are probably more used to?
2: Yes. Well, as I say, I've always had some interest in politics um, and I was uh, appointed to the House of Lords as a so-called people's peer. This is a system that was set up in about uh, the year 2000, uh, where uh, you are appointed after interview as a crossbencher um, where you don't have a party affiliation. And it's accepted that many people in this category are, as it were, part-timers because they have careers elsewhere. Uh, But it's a huge privilege to be there. Um, it's perhaps less of an honour than it used to be, um, but it's a privilege, um, and uh, uh, I take part in debates on education and uh, uh, science, and also more general debates where I feel strongly.
0: So you you do well, debates where you feel strong feel strongly, as you say. But do you, do you generally restrict yourself to things where you have uh, expertise to to contribute? Would you say yes? And 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 what? So what? What kind of things do you end up discussing in the uh, in the House of Lords that you think you have a you know sort of a, an input into the what happens in the in the country as a whole? Can you think of any any anything that's happened that has been uh, is I guess any highlights from from your time in those debates or problems you've managed to help solve in that role? Um,
2: well, the House of Lords really uh, is a revising chamber. So what it does is it goes through bills which may start off in the of Commons rather more carefully and proposes amendments. Sometimes these are just clarifications, but sometimes they're matters of principle. And one issue which has been uh, engaging a lot of us in the last few months and is still going on is the uh, uh, Higher Education and Research Bill. This is a bill to uh, change the organisation and administration of universities and of research. And this has a number of features which many of us are concerned about and has been quite a bit of sort of... uh, uh, debate between the Lords and the Commons on trying to amend this bill to make it, as we see, less uh, uh, objectionable uh, regarding the administration of universities and also uh, as regards the administration of research.
0: I guess to, to bring us back to, to where we all started from, um, uh, would you say you're you're uh, confident about the world in 2050 and beyond, otherwise or, or you don't have a crystal
2: ball? No, I am rather anxious and I do feel we will have a bumpy ride through the century, I describe myself as a technological optimist, but a political pessimist. (laughs) Because the gap between the way the world could be and the way it actually is, is, of course, very wide, um, and it's going to get wider. And what depresses me is that there are obvious moral imperatives in the world today, like doing something for the world's bottom billion, as it were don't have a decent life at all. And if we can't deal with that immediate moral imperative, I'm rather pessimistic about dealing effectively with uh, these uh, longer-term concerns. Um, I think uh, there's some reasons not to be too pessimistic. People sometimes worry about whether the population is growing so much that we can't feed everyone. I don't think that's an issue. Uh, If we look at what's happened over the last 50 years, the population has more than doubled, but food production has kept pace, or indeed more than kept pace. So when there is famine now, it's not an overall food shortage. It's problems in distribution um, or wars, etc. So there are some things we can cope with. there would be no problem with uh, giving everyone, even if the 9, million, nine billion of us in 2050, a decent life. But whether that will happen, of course, does depend on a whole lot of political circumstances about which one can't be so optimistic. And I do get rather concerned about the fact that new technologies, especially uh, um, biotech and cybertech, um, do allow small groups to, uh, by error or by design, uh, cause uh, uh, global um, setbacks. And to give an example, I think uh, if we look at biotech, um, everyone accepts that some of these new technologies need to be regulated, And that is fine. But enforcing these regulations globally, when there's huge commercial pressures and also people working on these technologies and discoveries all over the world, is going to be very hard. I would say it's as hard as effectively enforcing the uh, tax laws or the drug laws globally. And we know that there's not been much success in doing either of those. So I worry that when we have these new technologies, we may try to regulate them on ethical grounds and on prudential grounds but enforcing those regulations is going to be not entirely effective and that's a matter for concern and I don't see any solution to that but that's the kind of thing that worries me about the coming decades
0: uh, now uh, this is this is ostensibly an astronomy podcast so I guess we should we should talk about a little bit of uh, astronomy and, uh, and, and cosmology um what's your current field of research that you' you're focusing on Uh, when 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 you get time to do it I imagine
2: yes Um, well on on uh, how the first galaxies form we can look back uh, with our telescopes to when the universe was uh, about a tenth of its present age and that's when the first galaxies were forming and we want to try and understand how that happened because we are fairly certain that everything in our observable universe now started off in a hot dense state Uh, when everything was squeezed hotter and denser than the centre of a star and as it expanded and cooled and at some stage structures condensed out, made the first uh, atoms, the first stars, the first planets, the first galaxies, etc. And trying to understand this is uh, a big challenge and that's what many of us are trying to do. I should mention that uh, not only do we benefit from much more powerful telescopes, but also we benefit from being able to do much more powerful computer simulations because of course we can't do experiments in the real universe but we can in the virtual world of our computers and there's been huge progress in the last 10 years by using more powerful computers to simulate what happens when galaxies form when stars explode when stars crash together etc and that new tool has hugely improved the chances that we can really understand what's go- what's going on out there
0: do, do you think that the, the the power of computers has changed science uh it's obviously changed the, the amounts that we can do and the, and the accuracy that, that that we can we can do on large large data sets and large simulations and so on has it changed the process of doing science or is that essentially has been the same for for centuries and it's just a a, a perturbation to that
2: well i think it is it is as you say it's a it's a new way of doing science uh, we clearly depend on more advanced instrumentation in every science particularly in astronomy Uh, both on the ground and in space, but also we use computers not only to analyse very large data samples, and that's true in almost all sciences now, but also to do simulations. And uh, in astronomy, this is particularly important because we are, in a sense, helpless in that we are unable to do experiments. We can't crash real galaxies together, but we can crash them together in the virtual world of our computer. So I think astronomy is a subject which has been particularly aided by... uh, Uh, more powerful computer simulations. But other subjects have too. Weather forecasting, for instance, depends on huge uh, number-crunching facilities. So I think computers are crucially important in advancing science uh, and also dealing with big data.
0: Excellent. It's it's been wonderful to speak to you, uh, Professor Rees, on the programme. So thank you uh, for joining us.
2: Well, thank you very much. Uh, Good to be in touch. So, Edward, uh,
0: that, Martin reese's talk was very well uh, received, and he's a, he's a wonderful speaker.
1: He's a he's a phenomenal speaker, and uh, it's such an interesting topic. Particularly as I've heard Martin Rees talk about astronomy a lot, mm. and this is very very different to the the type of thing that I'd normally hear him talk about. So it's actually very refreshing to hear such an erudite uh, person giving a talk on something that uh, is is so different to what I was expecting.
0: Yeah, and and he speaks with such authority, and he does, yes. knows what he's talking about. Yes,
1: he has de- a, a very deliberate, developed style uh, that's that's very nice and very gentle. It's like uh, hearing a bedtime story, but yeah. uh, about the apocalypse. Yes, <laughs> yes.
0: Um, so, as he described himself, he he's a technological optimist, but a political pessimist. Yes, uh, and I think the it, the uh, onus is on us as citizens to uh, persuade our politicians. Uh, what, why they uh, why they should uh, deal with climate change and uh, the such like yeah so from that call to arms from uh, the astronomer royal uh, no less uh, let's hope the future is bright that's it for this month you can hear previous episodes uh, at pythagastro.uk uh, but for now goodbye goodbye <laughs> You've been listening to Pythagorean Astronomy, an extended version of this month's Astronomy Roundup from Pythagoras' Trousers, a weekly science and technology radio show presented by me, Reese Phillips. You can catch up on full episodes of Pythagoras' Trousers, subscribe to our podcast and get in touch by going to www.pythagoras-trousers.radio.fm.